As a listener of the Shift Your Consciousness podcast presented by Marcus White and Jordan Briggs, we would like you to understand that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Any changes to your supplementation, nutrition or lifestyle should only be done after consulting with a medical professional. Welcome to the Shift Your Consciousness podcast. My name is Marcus White. And my name is Jordan Briggs. We help people overcome a range of chronic and acute health issues and empower people to live a healthy, fulfilling life. Our mission in this podcast is to bring oppressed and current relevant information from all realms of health that you most likely don't know to empower new possibilities in your health journey. We want to help free your mind of the indoctrination of the mainstream medical system, media and societal dogma that disempowers your ability to heal, grow and live a connected life. If you're someone who is feeling trapped in your journey, not getting answers, but also equally fascinated in learning how to address the root cause to your health issues and is also open-minded to all mediums of health, this podcast is for you. So come join us to shift your consciousness. All right, guys, we're back for another Shift Your Consciousness podcast. And we're joined with a, a very inspiring guest today. Um, Eddie Anavar is an incredible human being who's um, actually bet, can- bet cancer himself. I think he's helped many other uh, human beings as well that have been fighting cancer to help them overcome it. And uh, he's also, uh, I think, done a bit of work with Gabriel Matei. So really keen to, to uh, go into that with you today, Eddie. And yeah, talk about your journey because it's been, you know, f- from what I've heard, it's super inspiring. So it's great to have you here, mate. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I love doing these things and um, it's great to have an opportunity just to to raise awareness even more and talk about things by sharing our own journeys. I think it's really powerful to do that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. So what, what what do you practice as, Eddie? Are you, you a functional medicine practitioner as well? Oh, I'm, I don't know. Many things. I don't yeah. know what my, what my classification is, but yeah. I'm, a, I'm a trained naturopath. So I've done my formal qualifications in naturopathy, um, but I don't really practice like a, a typical naturopath. Um, obviously, when you go through really big health issues like I did, I learned a lot around around health and you know i've been what uh, you know a practitioner now for maybe 15 years coming up 16 years and so you know that sort of time in the industry you do learn a little bit about humans um and health and obviously you're getting very unwell i learned a lot and it really set me a little bit deeper into the the mental emotional health in the psychological world um which led me to gabor Marte and his teachings helped me very much on my health journey and my own mental health journey as well but i really wanted to deep dive into that because when you you know like when you're when you hear truth and it just and it just you know it lands in you so deeply when i heard gabor for the first time talking and then read some of his books it just it just sang true so i was like i've got to work with this dude or learn from this guy because he's, he's older he's in his 70s and you know he may not have that much longer on the planet so i was like i need to get some juice out of this guy i need to understand deeper so i did some formal training with him that sent me more into the sort of psychotherapy world so i still do a lot of health stuff health coaching a lot of therapy work with people so somatic based psychotherapy which is more body-based stuff not necessarily cognitive behavioral therapy which is sort of like the the core of psychology and a lot of the therapy styles it's very heady um whereas somatic based body um not body what somatic based psychotherapy is more body-based feelings emotions and just sitting with what's there so it helped, I think it helped me really round out my practice rather than being too much in my head and focus on numbers and functional pathology and supplements and stuff. These things are all beautiful and, and can be really, really powerful in helping people change. But the mind for me was a real key, getting people to change. As you guys know, you guys are coaches. Mm. 
smashing the head against walls some days trying to get people inspire people to change and um yeah that's all psychological stuff and so i really delved into that yeah i have a massive core belief around that like you know you can, you have the manifestation of your health issues but then you've got the person behind the symptoms that has most likely been a major driver to those things Finally. manifesting in the first Finally. place so I, th I think we can be so it's so alluring to focus on the next big shiny thing to put mm. into your body whether it's a diet or a supplement or the new practitioner and i always say this to you know a lot of my patients that come in it's just like sometimes we've got to actually not necessarily focus too much on what we need to do to your body but what are the roadblocks that are in the way you know, your body wants to heal. We know it's a self-healing organism. We just need to facilitate that. But what are the big stinky roadblocks in the way? And how can we smash those down? And quite often, they're like self-sabotaging behaviors, so psychological stuff, core beliefs, you know, but maybe lopsided negative ones that get in the way. And I find, you know, once you, you smash those things down, then you give the people the right resources and, and techniques, and that's when they start to change and obviously, you know, reap the benefit of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we'll, we can dive into that some more, but usually what we start with, Eddie, is more about your journey and, and oh, yeah. how, you, how you landed into all this um, in the first yeah. place. Um, yeah. As I started, as it's it sound it sounded you know what I know about you is yeah, super inspiring. So I'd love to hear more about your journey. For sure, for sure. So yeah, if we go all the way back before I was even a even a naturopath, um, I was actually a printer. I used to print labels, wine labels, and dare I say it, pharmaceutical labels. Those stinky wow. things. Um, you know, I wasn't wasn't health really orientated. wasn't interested in anything like that. And um, there was a big tragedy in our family. Actually, my um, my nephew, who was five years old, rode out onto the road on a little four wheeler and got cleaned up by a, a four wheel drive towing a horse trailer. He was five, got absolutely smashed. I was first on scene, and that was obviously incredibly tragic and pretty gruesome. And but that shifted things. Something changed inside of me. And dare I say it, you know, a spiritual side of me emerged. You know, when these massive traumas come, it changes everything. And that was one of those moments where it changed everything. And then I started to ask different questions and really weird stuff was happening to on that sort of esoteric spiritual stuff, if you're into that. But stuff I couldn't explain because it wasn't my world. So I started exploring this stuff and I ended up going to all sorts of different hippy dippy type, you know, events and stuff, which was again not my world. And I ended up in a um a conscious living expo that used to do the rounds around Australia and it's real hippie fest and new age stuff and all the, the really cool cool stuff and i was going to those and there was a little stall there for the australian college of natural medicine um it's no, no longer around it's not called that it's called the endeavor group now um training natural therapies and do all the bachelor of health science and all the different modalities and i picked up you know my job was to go around this place and pick up as many freebies as possible yeah as you do so i was getting all the little bags and the little giveaways and i picked up one of the, the show bag things from the shane cottage natural medicine and i didn't even look at it for probably a month or so after that and i opened it up and i was at a place where i was working but you know i wanted bigger when you go through these things you know if life's so short it shows you the fragility of life um and i wanted more from life and i was reading this thing i was like that sounds pretty cool this thing called naturopathy never heard of it in my life never seen natural in my life so i made an appointment with the uh the college to go have a chat to the the the, the i don't know what she was student coordinator i suppose had a chat and i was just like cool sign me up let's do it and um never looked back went from basically part-time study and, and full-time work and then switched that over at some point to full-time study part-time work and then once i was qualified i went straight out into the workforce and started practicing i had to you know i had to earn an income um i didn't have the you know the the pleasure of you know doing it as a hobby business it had to be my main income so i went pretty hard into it and 
led me to, to practicing in pharmacy for a little bit, which was interesting, different crew. Um, but then a beautiful opportunity came my way. Um, this angel um, of a woman who I owe a lot to, she came and she was a, an older lady, a German lady who owned a, quite a large health center up where I was living. And she wanted me to have it, wanted to give it to me. This was wow. a 10-year-old existing business that had 15 practitioners. It had a yoga hall and had a little sort of shop that was a little bit um, you know, not, not fully functional, but she just wanted to give it to me, gift it to me. Um, and I barely nice. knew this woman. And I was young. You know, I was like, what I was, I was maybe late 20s at that stage um, in a relationship, um, you know, trying to build life. And then you get something like that, here, have a business. I'm like, bring it. Oh, absolutely do it. But Problem was I had absolutely no freaking idea how to run a business because you don't get taught business at, you know, naturopathy school. You know, yeah, you get taught to do the- big one as well. Yeah, I know. So, it was just like, all right, just sink in, just do what you know what to do and I know how to work hard. And so, I worked really hard. Um, and when things weren't really working overly well, and so the next six years, I was, I was trying to develop it. We went to like 18 practitioners. I put in a, a full-on commercial kitchen and a proper cafe and it was- it was going great guns, you know. It was yeah, pretty successful, um, but not not super successful financially because there was a lot of investment going into it. And I didn't know anything about finances. Finances wasn't talked in the family home. I didn't know how to manage it well or to do any of the businessy stuff. But I did know how to work really hard, and so I worked really hard. And when the, if things weren't working, I worked even harder, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then rinse and repeat. Just did that for like years, and um. 2013, I had a little bit of a, a knock at the door. Um, I was in the shower and I was uh, cleaning myself and I felt uh, the boys downstairs and uh, there was a bit of a lump on it. And I was like, ooh, that doesn't feel right. That's not cool. And luckily enough, I had a friend who was a GP and I said, mate, I think something's going on. Um, and so obviously went in front of him. Um, you l- I had a laugh with a patient yesterday. You lose all your inhibitions when you've got testicular cancer. You get felt up by all sorts of... Uh, Hmm. men doctors <laughs> you have to sort of like drop all that at the door had a laugh yesterday but you know had an ultrasound and sure enough you know it was it was cancer and this was 10 days before christmas in 2013 um it wasn't a nice christmas that one um after that you know with with, with cancer and oncology care it takes off like great guns you know everything happens very very quickly the appointments get into treatments and things like that and i was a naturopath with a very strong natural bias and i was in a lot of conflict around shit what do i do cancer you know can i try to cure this naturally and then you know obviously i could read the science and you know the the treatments for testicular cancer are very efficacious so it's just like do you just ignore treatments that have a very high success rate but i was really in a a rough spot so essentially i struggled that for a bit and then i ended up opting for more of an integrative approach and um i did really aggressive chemotherapy so for people out there don't understand cancer or have a huge knowledge on it there's many many sorts of cancer and some of them and there's a literal handful that are successfully treated with modern medicine modern oncology but a literal handful you've got like the most treatable which is testicular which is what i had and then you've got things like thyroid cancer which are very treatable we've got some of the lymphomas and some of the leukemias and non-solid tumors we call them these some of these are very treatable with very high success rate with first line of treatment in the realms of like 80 to 90 percent so the what i was looking at was the efficacy for my first line of treatment after i had surgery which was a little bit of chemotherapy of between 94 and 98 percent should never come back absolute cure they call it yet 
over the next two years, I had three relapses, uh, came back three times. I went from stage one, where I just basically had, obviously, the testing, they removed that, to stage four. So when I was at my worst, I had a, a nine centimeter by eight centimeter by three centimeter tumor in my abdomen. It was like a long, skinny one in between my aorta, aorta and vena cava. Very dangerous spot, but it was so big it was pressing my bowel up against my abdominal wall. I had a couple of tumors in my chest, someone on my collarbone, my neck, my lung. I was really crook, hey? Very crook, and th oh. it just wasn't working. It didn't make any sense. They didn't understand, like, this doesn't happen. You know, usually we get this sorted with first-line treatment, the first lot of treatment, and here I am, two years later, looking down the barrel of fourth-line treatment, and then scratching their heads literally and going, listen, mate, we don't know what to do. We've, there's not enough people that get into your scenario globally for us to have enough data to go, this is the way we need to go. We've got a couple of ideas here but we don't know what to do and he basically looked at me my oncologist and he said what do you want to do and it was almost like he wanted me to any meeny miny mow it you know um and so it was at that point i had to take a step back and really just go like what the fuck am i missing here like what's going on i'm a health practitioner i know how to to eat well to to supplement and support oncology outcomes and here it has come back over and over and over again and it was sort of at that point that i took a yeah, I call it my, you hear a light bulb moment. So I, I call this one more like a, a cast iron fry pan to the head moment. It, you know, I take it, stu uh, I stood back and I was like, like what am I missing here? Because I'm doing the right treatments. And it became very obvious in that moment. It seems so simple now reflecting on it. But back then, when you're in it, you don't see it. It's like, it's not what I'm doing is the problem. It's the way that I'm doing it's the problem. So, like I mentioned at the start, the roadblock. I had a massive stinky roadblock in the way, and that was my life and the way that I was living it. So epigenetically, the life that I'd created with my business, with the 15, 18 practitioners, yoga hall, cafe, shop, and the way that I was interfacing with it through stress. You know, I was very stressed out, but I was very cool, calm, collected on the outside, but inside was a total shitstorm. I wasn't managing my emotions well, and I certainly wasn't expressing my emotions at all. And that was the one of the big problems. And I realized that all that, my, my life isn't conducive to the outcome that I desire. And for me, that was a really big firecracker up the bum to go, shit, I've got to get this environment conducive to what I'm trying to do here. So I had to make some massive changes. We sold the business almost for nothing, just like we got it for, for nothing, literally nothing. We sold it for almost nothing. Um, which is very devastating, you know, to put so much work in and not really to get it. But at that stage, I didn't give a shit. You know, you're fighting for your life. Who cares about money? Mm. Um, so I had to to sell that business, had to make some massive changes inside of myself and the way that I managed emotions um, once I was aware of that and started to, to delve into the psychological stuff. And for me, meditation was huge, you know, to help me master the mind but also start to attend to some of the ouchy stuff inside, some of the painful bits, and start to, to hold emotions differently and very, very slowly start working on the expression side of it. And so that's what led me to the Gabor stuff originally way, way back then. Um, after that, basically, I uh, you know, made those huge changes. I had done some functional pathology on my cancer, so circulating tumour cells were extracted out of my blood and I sent them overseas to get them tested against all the oncology oncology drugs on the market to see which are the drugs that work on my cancer the best so individualized oncology and i had done that earlier in the the journey because i wanted to but unfortunately my oncologist wouldn't act on that he was in a sticky spot when it comes to the medical system what he's allowed to do and he can't just change 
you know, treatments just because you've got some beautiful information that goes, hey, you're on the wrong drugs, this is the right drugs to do. But I had that info there. And when they were scratching their heads going, mate, what do you want to do? That's when I was like, well, shall we have a look at these test results and see if they help us make this decision? So I decreased my stress. I had some beautiful intel and going, what's my best treatment here? And then I also went overseas and I went overseas for eight weeks and I did very, very aggressive hypothermia. So heat treatment where you heat the body up. Um, so it's like fever theory, they call it oncothermia. Um, and so cancer doesn't do well with heat. Um, it doesn't dissipate heat well because of its internal workings and its dysfunctional mitochondria and all the, the techie stuff, but it just doesn't do well with heat. It sensitizes it and it has the potential to potentially kill the cancer as well if you get the cell above 40, 42.1 degrees. That's sort of like the magic number. Um, so I went over there with all high hopes of going, I'm going to bake this shit out of me. You know, and so eight weeks is in the Philippines, deep in the provinces. Um, I'd heard about this Israeli academic doctor who was married to a Filipino, lived over there, and had a, a full hypothermia clinic. I was like, I want to do that because it's really all I could afford. Some of these overseas clinics can be like 13 grand a week, and I didn't have that sort of money, but I could do this little Filipino clinic, and I was confident in this guy. And so eight weeks systemic hypothermia taking your body temp up to like 40 degrees celsius which isn't fun if you've had a steaming fever it's brutal you'd hold that for maybe an hour or close to if you could i'd do that three times a week then i do a whole heap of localized hypothermia baking these lumps and bumps that were in me and i did that for, for eight weeks um and you know i was certain that i was going to come back cancer free the hero um i didn't um, actually everything grew everything tripled in size I was, I was really, really crook. Um, I was feeling a bit crook towards the end. I was getting a lot of back pain, which is that tumor pressing my bowel up, and um, I didn't look too flash. You know, oh, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot seven, believe it or not. Far out. Um, I'm 117 kilos. I'm a pretty fit guy, pretty big guy. When I was at my worst, I was 84 kilos. So 40 kilos came off me. I always laugh. I look like a cross because I was on chemo as well, so I had no hair. And I look like a cross between like Lurch and Uncle Festa, you know, from the Adams family. Yeah. I, I look rough, um, but I felt really rough too. And so I came back and my oncologist was like, we got to move, mate. You are close um and so i went on that last lot of treatment which my, my beautiful test result showed me um were the right ones to do and sure enough my cancer started to melt away absolutely melt away and disappear so quickly my oncologist draw was literally on the ground he was just like this is amazing i really no idea what's going on but this thing is disappearing at a rate of knots so what had happened is I'd gone over, obviously I'd created a different environment within myself emotionally and with the stress. I went overseas and I did my hypothermia and the, the, the literature shows is even if you can't kill the cancer with heat, what heat does is it super sensitizes the cancer to treatments, in particular what are called pro-oxidant treatments, so chemotherapies essentially, most chemos. And so I'd made this thing super sensitive by baking myself like a cooked chook for eight weeks over there. This thing was just so sensitized. I came back with this new line of treatment that my test results had said that, you know, option B is clearly better than option A that he presented to me. So we'll go with that. And it was that combo that just got this thing melting away out of me. And it disappeared so quickly before even the end of my cycles of chemo and it never came back. And that was eight years ago. 
So long story, but that that's how I, that's how I got here to have this conversation yeah, to do shit. what I do, which is work with a lot of cancer patients emotionally, psychologically, and also help design really comprehensive metabolic protocols to try to get better outcomes for people. Can I just ask, Eddie, I've heard about the induced fever for cancer. Yeah. Is that yeah. more common now? Can you do that in Australia? You can. There are some hypothermic clinics on the East Coast. Um, there's yep. a there's a couple around. I know the um, National Institute of Integrative Medicine, NIM, they have some pretty flash uh, hypothermia machines, the German machines, the Heckel machines are called, uh, or that's the brand at least. Um, they make really high-level hypothermia. I was in Philippines, so I was doing Filipino hypothermia, which is a bit, bit bodgier, uh, but it worked, um, so I don't care. Uh, yeah. But these German machines are incredibly expensive, um, but amazing so they are accessible is um the localized ones that just bake like if you had a breast tumor you could just bake that um and get that super sensitive and that can be very very good the literature shows us that hypothermia is fantastic with radiation that's where it really very very strong supportive but also chemotherapy um so it's not necessarily an alternative you want to use it potentially complementary um to it so yeah you can you can absolutely access it over here it's you know, on the West Coast where I am, we've got nothing, unfortunately. On the East Coast, there's a couple of spots, yeah. Unbelievable. So the idea with, like, it growing, I remember you saying, like, because um, we've been working with a client together with a tumour condition, and I remember how you said that, like, heat can cause – is it the blood flow? Yeah, yeah. That's, so it increases yeah. tissue perfusion, which is yeah. blood delivery to, yeah. you know, all tissues, all organs, all tissues, Um which can help enhance, obviously, nutrient flow to the tissues. Um, it can increase medicine flow to it, so you get more delivery of your medicine, your uh, your chemotherapy or your vitamin, or you might do niacin, you know, do a flush thing, and you might want to really pump it up, um, or you might be doing an IV with some supplements or something, and you want to get delivery to the tissue. But the problem with cancer is, especially solid tumours, uh, they develop, you know, their own blood supply. They, they, they create these chemicals that actually want to develop more blood supply to get the nutrients to them because cancer cells are incredibly metabolic taxing. They need a lot of fuel. They need all the nutrients, all the stuff that your healthy cells use, but on steroids, they need even more of it. So to deliver that, that, that hunger and thirst, they've got to develop blood supply, which is called angiogenesis, the development of blood vessels around that. So when you do a heat treatment, yes, you're pumping blood and nutrients and everything that it needs to grow, to that tumour, as well as the healthy tissues, but that tumour just eats that up and it can make it grow like it did with me. It tripled everything in size. But on the flip side of it, it also sensitises you know, the hell out of it. So if I'd done nothing, I would have just come back with tumours, you know, bigger tumours, which probably would have you know, killed me. Um, but I combined it with the appropriate treatment after that, so took advantage of that impact of the sensitisation, and that's where the, the magic happened. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So the idea of the protocol, of like, if, you know, if we looked at this as a simplistic protocol, yeah. would be, you know, you've got treatment, a treatment date, you go do possibly eight weeks of what you've just done, heating your body up to the fever, and then come straight back into whatever. Yeah, into, a, into something to leverage off that impact, which is, and this is a really important point, actually. So it's good that we're talking about it. Like, I see a lot of people coming, I've treated hundreds and hundreds of cancer patients over the last sort of what, maybe seven years when I got back into practice. And, you know, so often people come in and I call it the shotgun approach, you know, just throwing everything at it. You're on panic stations, you've got the C word, you've got cancer. So hit Dr. Google, you know, good old mate down the road comes out and goes, I use this on my unky, uncle, worked for him, it's probably going to work for you here, I bought you three bottles, take that. And he started massing all this 
this stuff, yeah, and you start throwing out it, hoping something sticks because you're at panic stations because it's cancer. Usually nothing sticks, you know, with that sort of approach. So I'm the way that I approach is very much from a strategic way. And so I follow these these protocols or these protocol structures that are called poll strategies. So having a, a clear strategy, you know, just like the analogy that I use with my patients is you just don't, if you're fighting war against the enemy, you don't just send your troops in guns blazing. What you do is you get some intel on the enemy like I did. I did some functional testing to understand the personality and the strength and weaknesses of my cancer. So you get some intel on the enemy. And then you might poison the water, poison the fuel lines that feed that enemy. So poison the water, the drinking water. So you wait for them to get gastro and start to get sick. You might you know, cut off the food supply going into your enemy. So you might start to metabolically starve the fuel lines that feed your cancer. And ultimately what you're trying to do is to get the enemy or the cancer as weak and as vulnerable as possible. And when it's in that state, that's when you send the troops in, yeah? When you're going to have a high cure rate with a weak enemy, not a strong enemy. You're going to have a high cure rate with a weak cancer cell, not a strong cancer cell. So these press pulse strategies are like a sensitize and then kill phase. Sensitize, kill, and you cycle on and off rather than just you know throw everything at it constantly. You've got to be a little bit more strategic because it's very taxing on the body. And cancer is very smart in the way that it evolves to treatment and becomes resistant to treatment. So you got to sort of change the game on it. And I'm a big fan of this style of approach because it's strategic. You can work with traditional oncology like chemotherapy regimes, but it's all about setting the, the scene up first, priming that cell to be weak and vulnerable and fragile. So when you do have a crack at it with whatever the treatment might be, you're going to have a higher success rate at trying to kill it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So are you, are you using like like with the medicine sort of like side of it, like when you're using something like chemotherapy or rate radiation therapy, yeah. like are you also using other herbal medicines, whether it might be like artismian or, yeah. or mistletoe? Like I know that some of those things are meant to be really good at yeah, obviously for sure. raising – you know, a, a TH1 sort of response to yep. go after cancer. So is yeah, that- there's heaps of things that you can do, but, you know, if someone is on a chemotherapy, you've got to be quite careful. It is quite easy to interfere with chemo. Yeah. And I always say the three ways you can interfere with chemo is to, one, interfere with the metabolic, sorry, not, not metabolic, the, the mechanism of action. So the way that it works, you directly interfere with it. So some of these chemotherapies are pro-oxidants. They create oxidative stress, which overwhelms the mitochondria and helps to trigger off apoptosis. So in that case, if, the, if it is a pro-oxidant chemo, then you wouldn't use antioxidant therapy because it's false economy. You're going to interfere with this mechanism action. That's an example of it. So as long Maybe as you're saying like, don't use like glutathione, for example. Yeah, it's crazy. You see all these intuitive doctors sticking glutathione in a bag with vitamin C, which even that in itself is like nonsensical. You've got IV vitamin C at grammage doses, which is a pro-oxidant treatment. And then in the same bag, you put glutathione, the most powerful antioxidant. Like, where's the sense in that? Um, and so it's quite common, you know, and this is the, the thing when you do this confused chemical approach or the shotgun approach, then you get all, you're doing lots and you're probably spending a shit ton of money as well. But the return on investment sometimes is really low because it's a confused approach. So you're better off to do less and do it better. Yeah. Um, so the three ways you can interfere with the mechanism of action of that drug, or you can speed up the metabolism so your body clears it quicker from the body. So you've got to be careful when you support the liver function, anything that speeds up liver enzymes, 
Or you can do the opposite. You can slow those liver enzymes down and you hold on to that drug for longer than you probably want to, which means higher concentrations in the body, more side effects, and you know it's not nice for the, the patient. So as long as it's not interfering with those things, then you're good to go with that. And so that's for obviously for an experienced practitioner to be able to cross-reference this stuff and just go, yeah, this stuff's safe safe to do. And when you hit Dr. Google, it won't do that for you, you know? Um, so, yeah, like when it comes to options, yes, you can work in a complementary way. Like a lot of people come and, you know, there's a big difference between alternative medicine and complementary medicine, yeah? Alternative, even the name, makes you think we do this instead of this. And like with cancer, I've just found, you know, Natural medicine's got some great tools. It doesn't have a lot that's super successful in killing cancer, but its strength, I believe, is in sensitizing cancer. We've got a lot of things that help to weaken and metabolically interfere with that cancer cell to make it weaker and vulnerable. And so if the person is doing chemotherapy, then we have this beautiful opportunity to work underneath the chemo to weaken and sensitize and create a conducive environment for a better outcome. Yeah. Um, when people come in and they're this, you know, they're either so riddled with side effects because they've been on chemotherapy for years and they're like, I'm done. I'm done. And then they start looking for alternative. Then we have to look at, well, what are the options? And there are some things, like you mentioned, some of them, you know, things that support the immune system in really powerful ways and boost up that natural anti-cancer immune system, that cell-mediated, you mentioned T-helper-1 type response. It's an antibacterial, viral, fungal, anti-cancer response. There's beautiful herbs, there's mistletoe extract injections that can do these things. There's, there's all sorts of things that can boost that up. That's an important part. Um, you know, there's, there's other things that can have a crack at the cancer cells, IV, vitamin Cs. There is literature around that, even though, you know, a lot of doctors will just poo-poo it. You know, these things, there is some benefit, but it's not, they're not one-trick one ponies. They're not magic pills. They've still got to go into a, a framework that you follow. And that's why I really love this press-pulse strategy. Have a strategy around, let's make this thing weak. And then once it's weak, let's have a crack at it. Yeah. And okay, this is where I might then start doing the IVs or the mistletoe or whatever it is. Um, rather than just going, no, I'm just going to stick all my eggs into one basket. You know, we did some cannabis basket, mistletoe extracts, you know, um, IV vitamin C and stick everything in that and do nothing else. Like that's an unwise move. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask, is the press pulse, is that? When you say that, is that like you would go, would you go back in like do do a treatment, say it's chemo, for example, would you do the chemo, then is it the pulse or the, you know, which way around? <laughs> is the pulse- It doesn't uh, make it very obvious, does it? Yeah, yeah the, no, the, no. the press phase is the sensitized phase, the pulse yep. is the kill phase. Okay, so say we've done the pulse phase, hasn't quite got to the bottom. The Going back to the press, is that going back into the fevers? Yeah, so, you know, most chemotherapy regimes are done on cycles. So yeah. you only have maybe every 14 days you have one dose or you, you might be on a combination treatment. But you've usually got like one day where you're having chemo and then nothing happens until the next, you know, cycle, which is 14 days later. So a lot of people are under the illusion that, you know, you get your chemo and then it's in you working for 14 days and 14 days you get a top up with it and that's not how it works. So chemotherapy, because it's such toxic drugs, they give you the right dose based on your body weight. It reaches concentration in the body where it's doing maximum therapeutic impact. And then like every chemical, every drug, every vitamin, it's got a half-life. Your body starts to metabolize and get rid of it. And then generally after like three, nine hours, something like that, depending on the drug, it's not there anymore. It's subtherapeutic and it's not doing anything. And the rest of that 14 weeks isn't about treating cancer. It's about recovery. 
So will will the bone marrow, which also gets targeted by the chemo, can that recover and our blood counts recover so we can tolerate the next dose? And so this is why the press pulse strategy works well because that week before chemo, when, you know, listen, if you're on chemo, you're feeling like absolute crap. But that last week before chemo is usually your best week. Then you can get a little bit of vitality and uh, enthusiasm to be able to maybe follow some dietary restrictions, take a few supplements that help to metabolically weaken the cancer getting ready for that next kill phase makes oh, sense? right i get you. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, right. so some sometimes you've got like 21 day cycles so it's just about working in and as long as you've got a little bit of a a preceding period where we can start to prime that cell for better outcomes that's that's the strategy behind press pulse oh, makes oh. Total, yeah makes total sense mm. i was gonna a question you yeah go, i was gonna, i was gonna like just kind of because, you know, when we had our consult, there was some other things that were really interesting that we spoke about, like around like B vitamins and like anything that supports mitochondria is like can be actually dangerous. Can be, yeah, can be actually detrimental to the outcome. You know, one of the hallmarks of cancer in general is that their mitochondria, which are these little energy reducing organelles, they call them inside every almost every single cell in the human body. You've got these mitochondria that produce ATP, adenosine triphosphate, the, the energy currency of the body. All cancer cells have very um, mutated and dysfunctional um, mitochondria. They don't work well. The energetics doesn't work. And this is why the metabolism in cancer cells shifts more towards anaerobic glycolysis, so using sugars to, to produce a little bit of ATP to keep the, the ship running, so to speak, because usually it would be the mitochondria that do that. And so it's a hallmark. And if you have a look at you know the mitochondria, there, there's DNA inside the mitochondria. There's only two places inside the, the human cell with, with DNA. You've got the nucleus, which has our DNA from our ancestors, all the genes and everything. And then you've got the mitochondria. And so the mitochondria, the DNA there is a little bit different. It's not human, which is pretty crazy when people hear that. It's actually bacterial uh, uh, DNA because if you go back to the roots of what we are when we were like these weird single-cell organisms and we crept out of like the, the swamp mud, we formed this alliance with an, an aerobic bacteria um, and that became our mitochondria. So it's actually not human DNA in there, but it's that DNA that gets mutated and helps the cancerous process form. So a lot of the research is trying to focus on these mitochondrial disruptors and things that damage the mitochondrial membranes and mechanisms and how that can damage um, the mitochondrial DNA, which essentially forms cancer. And so whenever you're treating cancer, whether it's chemotherapy, whether it's uh, you know a natural approach, press pulse strategies, all this stuff, the, the target really is the mitochondria because the mitochondria is what triggers apoptosis, which is this cell death and that's essentially what you're trying to do in cancer try to get that cancer cell to kill itself to you know apoptose and but that's a mitochondrial mechanism so all eyes on the prize is target that mitochondria weaken it sensitize it and then get it to trigger off pop off and so this is where the b vitamins and things like magnesium not necessarily magnesium but b vitamins for sure certain ones coenzyme q10 these nutrients that a lot of people take for energy and for stress and stuff they can fuel up mitochondrial health and if, if the mitochondria is the problem, the engine room is the problem, you don't want to be sticking more fuel on that fire. So you've got to be careful around mitochondrial nutrients in cancer. Wow. That can be counterproductive. It can make your job harder than what it needs to be. So I tend on my patients to, to get off anything mitochondrial supporting. 
you'd have to do a full reset. Like if as soon as you got the big C, it'd just be fucking shut down. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's it's pretty mind blowing. It changes everything. And yeah. like I always say to people, you know, you want to get over this. We've got to create different conditions than the ones that created this condition. Which means you've got to change freaking everything in your life. The way you eat, the way you move, the way you sleep, the way you breathe, the way you relate, your internal environment, all of it needs to change. So we can create a totally hostile life for this cancer. So it almost becomes obsolete. Yeah. And um sounds well, it doesn't sound easy really, does it? But you know, it takes a lot of effort. You know, extraordinary outcomes, especially with advanced metastatic cancer where it's spread to different parts. It takes an extraordinary effort because you're asking for almost the impossible. And so, unfortunately, I get a lot of people come in and they, just, they come in, you know, with a Google article that they printed off around THC or something like that, medicinal marijuana. Will this cure my cancer or maroon bush or, you know, some weird herb from the Amazon rainforest? Like, how do I get my hands on this? I'm like, I wish it was that easy. Uh, it's a very complex condition and unfortunately the solution to that complex condition is also really quite complex as well. Um, a lot of moving parts which can be a little bit overwhelming and that's where they need people like yourself and myself to coach them through it and chunk it out for them and make it actually achievable. Yeah. And like I, I really want to go deeper into a lot of this stuff. Obviously, um, you know, with the way Jordan and I practice, we're not practicing with cancer yet. Oh, Jordan, you've started to do a little bit, obviously, with Eddie. Um, but obviously we're trying to do a very holistic approach and try and change behaviors. And and yeah, I try to stress to people that I can't give you a supplement to fix this. Like we need it, we need like I need to change who you are right now yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's your behaviors that have got you to where you are right now. Yeah. But like just one thing, I, I want to touch on a million things. Um, but can we talk about like nutritionally about sure. things that um, you know when you have cancer, um, what where you should go nutritionally? Um, yeah. If you know, even possibly if you think there's anything that does cause cancer nutritionally, um, yeah. go down that line. Yeah, listen, I've obviously I've treated a lot of people now, and I've seen people do well and thrive with cancer on all the diets. I've seen people thrive on raw food, vegan diets, down to the lion's diet, meat, salt, water, and everything in between. Um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, there are strategic diets and very aggressive nutritional interventions that you can do for the right person. So I do one, and I've, I've spoken to, to Jordan about this before. It's called methionine restriction, which is you know, very – it's a fasting-mimicking diet. It, it basically depletes one amino acid or attempts to in the diet called methionine. It's an anabolic amino acid cancer. Absolutely 100% needs it and cannot get it from anywhere else. So when you get it out the diet, it starts to struggle. So it works very well in this press pulse type strategy with chemotherapy, but it's not for everyone. You know, if you've got someone who's kick their body's gone into this catabolic state, you know, they're pushing 40 kilos body weight, you're not going to do an aggressive diet like that. Um, it's just, it's not. It's not going to give them enough. They're going to get too weak. They're going to continue to lose weight. That's not ideal. So it's really about also meeting the patient where they're at too. And I think it's more than just diet. Diet's a foundational chemistry that we take in each day, and there's many ways to eat in a healthy way. Um, I think it's broader than that. You mentioned like, you know, people come in, they want the magic pill. And I always say to people, listen, there's no magic pill. If you find one, let me know. But there is one that I know of, and I said it's you. You're the magic yeah. pill. Yeah, I love that one. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's the way that you approach this whole thing. So, you know, are you, have you got the right strategy going into this? A on the right drugs? Are there any roadblocks that psychologically that we need to smash down? And, you know, we've got to create that total environment, which is, you know, almost impossible for little old 
Joel or Jane to do by themselves. They need people like yourself and myself to, to guide them through that process and can create some structure for that because they're feeling like crap, especially if they're on chemo and they're tired, they're on chemo, and they just need someone to semi-hold their hand through it, some of them. Yeah. Yeah, so when it comes to diet, yeah, there's no real one dietary component. Obviously, there's things in the diet, you know, that aren't conducive to optimal health. Obviously, ultra-processed foods, it's not going to help anybody out there. I think, um, you know, when it, when our diet's a little bit out of whack with sort of our macronutrient balance and if we're not managing our insulin and our blood sugar levels and maybe we've got too much grain in our diet, which is, an you know, ideal to have too much grain in the diet and maybe our insulin's not working for us. Insulin's an anabolic hormone. It makes things grow. Yeah. Um, when insulin goes up, quite often IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1 goes up, and that's a tumor growth factor. So this is why diabetics have higher rates of cancer. Um, so we want to learn from that and go, okay, I need to maybe adapt my diet to get a little bit further away being an agricultural carbohydrate-adapted diet or body and go a little bit more towards maybe like a fat-adapted diet. And this is where, obviously, the conversation around keto, more carnivorous styles of eating, or just really just cutting down these things that popped up in the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago called grains and pulses and legumes. You know, they be became a main affair in the Western diet, and it's really not giving us a hell of a lot. There's anti-nutrients in there like the phytic acids and all the, the oxalates and all the stuff, uh, but really just too much sugar. Way too much yeah. sugar. Yeah. Um, and something that's come across my table just recently, there's a lot of what's called deuterium in grains. And so deuterium is a, a form of hydrogen. And it, when we have too much deuterium in our diet, it affects the mitochondrial membrane and it damages the mitochondria. And I think there's a link. It's very, very early science here. And it's super exciting to go down that wormhole. Hey, have a look at deuterium. It's called, it's basically an isotope of hydrogen. And it's everywhere. It's endemic to the... Our world, but with the modern world as it starts to develop, we're getting more and more deuterium in the body. And so, one of these strategies on helping with cancer patients and health in general is to lower our total deuterium intake. Um, and there's ways around deuterium depleted water and different lifestyles like the breath work and you know stress and different sorts of dieting. So, if we go off, you know, a sugar based diet, a cultural style diet, it's lower. In deuterium, so all these things that can be of, of some some great benefit. Um, but yeah, diet, there's more than one way to, to skin a cat with that. What it needs to be is achievable, sustainable, and obviously have some healthy hallmarks to it. You know, quality fats, you know, if you're eating animals and grass-fed, pasture-finished stuff, low grain and pulse, legume residue, you know, um, a little bit of fermented stuff in there, fruits, beautiful veggies fine you know it's a real common sense really diet but um again if someone wants to go really aggressive and they're the right sort of body type and mindset to it there's some very aggressive strategies on diet i was going to say it was would have been challenging going like low methionine then the low grain low legume would have been like that's aggressive that'd be challenging yeah but but again you know it forms a part of the press pulse strategy so it's yeah. not a constant diet you know, diet means comes on the word dieta, which means way of living. It's what you do all the time. Whereas this is an intervention that's short-term in nature. And also it's pressed and pulsed, just like the, the supplement and the medicine regime. So it's really, let's say if you're on a 14-day chemotherapy cycle, you're only doing low methionine for seven days. That's it. And then the seven days, you can expand that diet out and replete the body, which is what it's all about. It's about creating a dance between 
pulling methionine out and then pushing it back in, pulling it out, pushing it back in. And then it's how you leverage off that impact with the therapies and the chemo and how it fits into the timing of all that. That's where the magic is. So most people, if they need to, can put their head down and concentrate on a diet for seven days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to methionine restriction. If you had to do it every day for like years, that would be brutal. I'm not that mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If anyone doesn't know that methionine is the restriction is basically it's a vegan diet. It's a very, very low protein. It's essentially a vegan diet because animal protein is so high in methionine. So it's just one week of getting all these high protein foods out of your diet. So it's very light. It's a lot of fruit. It's a lot of vegetables, a lot of fat in there, but it's very low protein. Um, and for the people that go, no, protein, 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 yeah, I get it. But, you know, we're trying to sensitize and weaken cancer here. And when you restrict this methionine in particular, which is an anabolic amino acid, it helps produce glutathione and lots of other things in the cancer cell. When you start to extract that out the diet, the cancer cell gets very weak and very vulnerable. So the methionine research came out of the back end of some fasting research on chemotherapy patients done in the late 50s. And so they were fasting people medically, fasting day before, day of, and day after chemotherapy in the late 50s. And they were seeing that there were some fantastic results for chemotherapy patients, but they didn't have any idea why. So it took them almost 10 years until like sort of mid-60s to really understand it was to do with protein restriction. So the amino acids are the building blocks of of life. And when you restrict certain amino acids, there's certain components that can't be produced, in particular inside the cancer cell, things called polyamines, which are structural proteins. The cancer cell struggles to produce that. When you restrict methionine, glutathione levels decrease, and cancer cells have bucket loads of glutathione. So again, now we've just ripped off some of the armor of the cancer. It's not as strong, can't defend itself. Um, and it slows the growth of the cancer cell down, which is all beautiful impacts on that cell when we're trying to prime it to get ready to kick it in the guts. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a strategy that's been around. It's probably the longest studied diet with the least amount of public exposure out there. No one knows what it is because it's super unsexy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like keto that's got a whole vibe around it. And, you know, you got all the Instagram influencers doing keto, keto, keto. Methionine restriction is just like beige and boring, but really effective, though. So for the right person, it's a great strategy. Yeah. 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 Cool. Because there's, there's a lot of um, aspects to cancer and, and hypermethylation, isn't there? And that's what I guess methionine is kind of playing yeah, into. For sure. For, it, can, it can decrease, obviously, methylation. And for, you know, if the, the cancer is a hypermethylator, which many of them are, then you know, that could be of some benefit as well as part of the bigger picture. Because it is, it's about how can we get this weak and vulnerable? Um, you, you can do methylation tests, obviously, on the whole body, but you, know, you can also do methylation tests on the tumors or the cancer cells as well to understand the unique personality, um, which I wish everybody did at the start of treatment when you're first diagnosed, that you do you know, a full genomic sequencing on it, you do all the chemosensitivity and test it against all the drugs on the market and see, well, this is the personality of the cancer that we're dealing with here and here's what it's sensitive to. Then you could individualize your approach. That's called individualized oncology. That would be optimal, wouldn't you agree? But we're not there yet. We're probably a decade or two away from really doing that. Sorry. Do we know what like um, fuel sources like when you do the testing on the tumors? Do we know what fuel sources they're feeding on? Like because obviously I remember we spoke about like cancer can feed on just about anything. Like we can. Yeah, it's it's pretty smart. Um, Some of these tests can give you some insight to seeing which genes are upregulated and what <clears throat> what fuel path these genes are associated with. There's more and more. So this whole 
realm of metabolomics, which is sort of like metabolic testing to understand. It's really growing because this metabolic oncology has grown in popularity, this way to interfere with it metabolically and, and kill it. And so there is a, a distinct lack of tests that tells us this information, but I would imagine there's a lot of people working on bringing something to market, which allows us to fully understand like what does this thing feed off so we can get very strategic with it. But to my knowledge, with it, there's no direct test at the moment. There's ones that you can read into it indirectly and start to understand, but there's nothing that just goes test, bang, here's what your cancer feeds off. There's nothing like that yet that I'm aware of. <clears throat> cool. Um, I want to get a little bit deeper now. I love talking about the nutrition, but um, you know, you mentioned it earlier on, and, and I sort of want to go into maybe what you think the, the roots are to cancer a little bit more, but like obviously you talked about a big thing that changed for you um, you know, you talked about the difference in treatment, but, you know, you, why didn't it come back? And, you know, you obviously said you did a hell of a lot of work personally on behaviours and looking to gobble yep. mate. So can we go in a little bit deeper there? Like what are – have you found patterns in behaviour and, and lifestyles that yep. are possibly causing cancer Absolutely. on an emotional Absolutely. level? Yeah. Absolutely. So this has been studied for over over 20 years. Hey, So there's a whole field of oncology called psycho-oncology. It's the psychology of a cancer patient. So there's a type of person that tends to get cancer. Wow. Now, this isn't a, a total hard and fast blanket rule, but when you've you know counseled as many people as I have and you see these behavioral patterns and personality traits come up over and over again, you start to go, hmm, there's something definitely going on here. And so in psycho-oncology, there's a bit of a saying, they say arseholes don't get cancer, okay? <laughs> um, so you think of the arsehole, the A-type personality, like what do they do with their stress? They express it out, they stick a hole in the door, they yell at the colleague, they kick the dog, they, you know, they, they express it out, maybe not in a healthy way, but they get it out. So this cancer-prone personality type, the C-type personality, they call it, or behavioral traits, these are beautiful people. Very, very nice people that are the caretakers of the world. They're called cancer, the nice person disease, okay? The people pleaser disease, the empath disease. So these are soft people, very sensitive people, and that's sometimes where the sensitivity bites them in the ass a little bit. Um, they're too sensitive to things and they take on other people's emotions, but they don't externalize stress very well. So the main, the main personality trait is that they repress emotion, and that means to swallow those emotions down and not show them to the world. So like me, I, I hit it behind a cool, calm and collected demeanor. Your inside was a total shitstorm. You know, and these, if you look at why these people do this, and because I do a lot of therapy work with my patients, I get to hear their biographies and you see where these coping strategies, because that behavioral trait, whether it's a people-pleasing trait or an empath trait, these are coping strategies, the adaptations that the psyches developed because of things that have happened to them. And it's usually stuff that's happened to them in earlier life, in the, the formative childhood, first seven years of life, essentially, when you're learning about the world and your place in it and how to interact with it. Because, you know, you're born, you don't know how to do this thing called life. You learn it. And all these experiences happen, then you adapt and cope to them. And sometimes the way that we learn to cope with these things that happen to us, sometimes really horrible things that happen to us, is not in like the the, the healthiest way. We might become that people pleaser. You know, we learn how to to get our validation, love, and connection by being of service, or being the perfectionist, or being the super helpful one, or being the one that gets all the A's in class, and all these sort of things. We all do it. 
Um, but sometimes what that means is that later down the track, decades down the track when you're in your 30s and your 40s and life's getting complex and kids coming in and jobs and careers, that this old stuff starts to show up in a different way. And quite often what it means is that we're not very good at putting boundaries up and saying no and protecting ourselves. We put boundaries up to protect ourselves, yeah? And this is another personality trait of these cancer-prone personality types is that they're so nice, they are boundaryless. Um, so they don't protect themselves. And that shows up like, oh, yeah, I'll do the overtime, which means they don't go to the gym. Or, yeah, I'll, I'll just do this before lunch and then lunch, lunch runs out and they just eat convenience food because they would have had half an hour for lunch. But because they said, I'll do that for you, they don't eat a healthy lunch. And when done chronically over a long period of time, that influences your life, yeah, and it influences your health. And so the C-type personality I see in my patients, probably about 80 85% of them, they tick all these boxes, beautiful people, soft people, very in tune, empathic in nature, nice. They caretake. They don't receive help well. They are the caretakers of the world. They give the help. They don't receive the help. And then, um, you know, they don't express their stress to the the outside world. So they don't manage stress well. That's, that's a really common psychological trait. That's Again, it's nothing new. I'm not talking about new stuff here. This has been known for decades. Mm, it's an interesting archetype. It sounds like you're talking about me. <laughs> I, you know what was funny? Well, 40, 43% of the Australian population get yeah, cancer. Like, 43, like, that's one and two. So one of you, maybe it's you. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> wish that on you at all. We're, 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 um, not in the, uh, we're not in the right industry for it, I tell you. Nah, yeah. I was looking at Geordie's face. We are talking about hypermethylation and then taking on other people's emotions. Yeah, and then I was like, like, like Geordie's starting to go blank here. Oh, oh, I'm a hypermethylator as well. And that's what Gabor's work's all about. It's about understanding. Know thy Self, yeah. There's so much power in understanding how you became you and why you do what you do, and that's what Gabor's work. That's what the, that's what therapy in general, any therapy, is really about. It's how can I understand myself better, you know? And the answers to that's in your biography. You got to look at what happened to you, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff. You 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 know happened to you. You adapted to it. You coped with it. You made meaning of it about you and the world, and it goes into the big pot. Yeah, I call it the use you. You know, your personality is the lump sum of all the things that have happened to you and how you've coped with it and made meaning from it. And you pop that into the big pot and stir it up and there's there's you, your personality. You're a learnt behaviour. You're an adaptation. And so there's power in that. If I've adapted to this, if I can understand what I've adapted to, maybe I can change my relationship to that and then learn a new way to adapt to this when it keeps showing up in my life. And so the way that I support my cancer patients on this level is to get them to understand, you know, why don't you put yourself first? Why do you drink last from the cup? Why why can't you say no? Why don't you externalize your stress? And when they can understand that they change their relationship to themselves. And when your relationship to self changes, everything changes. That's the most deepest, most powerful level of healing because that literally changes the way you interact and perceive the world. Perceive your food, perceive your habits. Um, and that's a really deep you know, healing path, which is a little bit different to the curative path. You know, you've got the cure path, which I talk about the healing, the curing journey, which is get rid of the lumps and the bumps. But then you've got the big the big question that I always ask, like what does this disease mean in the context of your life? That leads us down the healing path. What do I need to change? What's the why, not the what? The what's the functional pathology and the lumps and bumps and all that, that, that cool stuff we can nerd out on. The why is a little bit more philosophical. It's like, what's going on here? What do I need to change? Why? Um, and I believe a cancer patient needs to do both paths. Yep. Okay. Oh, 
one of the things that um, blew me away, one of our convos that we had as well, was that like the macro to the microcosmic of like yeah. manifestation. That like that like yeah. I, I love yeah. that shit. <laughs> yeah. So you, t- you look at a cancer cell. It's a, it's a cell that's lost. So one of the hallmarks of, of cancer is that it loses its uh, function in the cell cycle. So the cell cycle is a whole chain of events that happens to this this cell, all cells, including cancer cells, uh, ideally, and it goes through all these, mut- not mutation, uh, division points before it divides off into the daughter cells. So one cell becomes two, two cells become four cells. That's exponential growth. It happens in all of our tissues, but cancer cells, it does that exponentially. And cancer cells have, because of these dysfunctional mitochondria, that cell cycle doesn't work very well. And this is why it just grows out of control. And so it's a cell that's lost agency over its life cycle, which is very similar to the cancer-prone personality type. And one of the things that I hear from them is it feels like I'm existing and I'm being dragged through life. I've got no agency over my life. So that's that microcosmic sort of macroscopic reflection sometimes spins me out because one of the most beneficial things that you can do for a cancer patient as practitioners, or if you are a cancer patient, one of the most beneficial things you can do is to get yourself empowered, work with someone that can give you agency over your journey. Because medicine will drag you along for the ride. You're not in charge. You just rock up to your appointments, get a cannula bunged in or your port plugged in and get your chemo, go home, and we'll see you in a fortnight. You know, There's not a lot of agency or advocacy there for you, and a person feels incredibly disempowered, which is generally the, the, the beautiful cancer-prone personality type, how they feel in life. So the, the one of the best ways you can serve that cancer patient is to educate them and empower them and encourage them to take charge of the journey, which is my style. You know, I want you to be driving the bus. I'm on I'm on the bus, your team, with your, your oncologist, your GP, your Chinese medicine practice, whatever, whoever you want on there, but you're driving, mate. Do not give that wheel to anybody else because it's your life. Um, and a lot of people, once they start to feel empowered, that's just that that just helps to get the vital spark back in them, which is really important for the healing process. I love that word empowered, like because mm-hmm. you know, in like no matter what space, we're still like um, you know, people come to me and Jordan, you know, they want to do it unconsciously. And like, you know, I want to bring consciousness to everything you're doing because I want yeah. you to walk out of your experience with me empowered, you know, oh. take control. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. that old, you know, don't, you know, as, as coaches, as, you know, naturopaths, as doctors, whatever, you know, we don't, don't, don't give your, your clients, your patients the fish. Teach them how to fish. It's that old chestnut, yeah? You know, we've got to teach them how to fish, how to eat, like What's the benefit of food? What is food? Do you understand it? How do you think you should eat? Now you've got that knowledge. You, know, you want to sort of lead them to the water, but you, know, you can't make them drink. Uh, it's the hardest part of our job, I think. Um, and you know, it's a skill set that we need to really work on. And, and unfortunately, in medicine, they are pathetic at that because it's not in the culture of medicine. The art of medicine, that's the art of medicine, of healthcare, is that stuff, the communication, the inspiring your patient. And unfortunately, medicine's lost the art. It's become a very much a science and they're trying to be a hard science. And a hard science is, you know, one plus one equals two and it always equals two. Whereas healthcare and medicine is an applied science to soft science you can't do that because you're dealing with humans and every human's different with different factors in their life and a one-size-fits-all recipe book oncology or recipe book diabetes management plan doesn't work we know this as holistic type practitioners and so we've got to do this individualized medicine and you do this by getting that patient to understand themselves their body 
what their pathology results might be if you've done this beautiful functional pathology and almost get them to self-diagnose, yeah. you know, and then go, well, what do you think you need to do based on what you know now? Okay, so you need to start eating more fiber or you need to start, you know, maybe exercising in a different way or whatever it is, you know, meditating, breath work, whatever. Um, I think that's when you can really shift people's lives, which is our jobs, is to make change. Without change, nothing changes. You can't supplement disease away or, or shitty health away. You've got to change. And then you use the supplements and the medicines to help enhance that 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 change. Yeah. Well, My approach well, at least. No, that, I, I think we're both exactly the same. Yeah, awesome. it's taking charge. I love that word you use because, you know, one of the things that I think um, a lot of us, you know, this is something that I can see in myself is I had very uh, codependency sort of patterns. And um, from a young age, I took on a lot of responsibility to to make my family happy, um, to support their emotional needs. And I, and I, that's where it fits into that archetype we're speaking about, right? Which, yeah. You know, I, I for a lot of my life, I haven't felt in charge of myself because I've always been empathically tuned into everyone around me. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so it's funny enough that you know, um, I started to get chronic health issues in you know in my mid uh, mid twenties, um, which I'm still kind of dealing with now and still deepening into like the the, yeah. the deep inner work. I'm actually through a massive right. rite of passage right right now, and there's a awesome. massive death of self that's happening <laughs> right, this right. part of me well it's it's the hero's journey isn't it it's just yeah. the lifelong journey is to come back to authenticness you know back to the original you that's underneath those coping strategies of being mm. that person you know they are all adaptations and that's the the work and that's not a that's a that's a lifetime of work you know i think that's our goal that maybe why we're here is to to uncover that jewel that's underneath all the wet blankets that got smashed on top of it during our life so mm. good on you yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's a uh, it's deep work. It's oh, it's painful work too. Yeah, 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 <laughs> really painful. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's funny, like, because I've even been having these like moments of just like, who am I now? You know, what what is what, what's yeah. my like, what's my purpose? Like, who am I without that old way of being? Yeah, oh, that's juicy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny when I look back to when my uh, health complications, like, were starting, like, with um my own gut health issues. It was some of the low, like after that, trying to delve into, and I didn't even know what I was doing, but a lot of, I spent a lot of the time trying to self develop and try. And when I look back on all my patterns, I'm similar to Jordan um, in the sense of trying to emotionally support everyone around me. And I look back, I put, I did put that much work into self. Um, and that was probably the major contributor to, you know, turning my health around rather yeah. than, you know, a lot of the physical work I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah, it's not till now where I feel like I've actually, you know, Probably when I met, just before I met my wife, like I feel felt felt like I'd taken charge of my life, Amazing. but I haven't had yeah. a real health complication since. Yeah. Yeah. But can you see it's like those roadblocks, yeah, that we talked yeah. that I talked about earlier. We've got to find out and and try to excavate down and see what are the roadblocks. I know for me now we're all personal sharing. This is awesome. Like vulnerability is so important. It it. it you know, invites other people to do it as well. Like me with my business and working harder and harder and harder. One of the big things is I wouldn't let anyone help me. I don't want anyone to to help me. And a big part of that for my psychological background and biography was, you know, that business for me fulfilled a really deep need for validation, love and connection. And it's the validation, love and connection that I never got in childhood, particularly from my dad, my dear old dad. Um, he really struggled to connect with me. And so I had to seek outside for these things. And I, I got this business where I was starting to get the accolades and people were saying, oh, 
so good. I love this place and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, that feels pretty good. You know, that's a little bit foreign. I haven't felt this before. And so there was like almost like an addiction to that because it was fulfilling a need. And a big part of my journey was I had to learn how to fulfill that need inside of myself and stop trying to get it outside of myself. Because the problem for me was it just kept me doing what I was doing, which is working harder and harder, even though I had bloody stage three or four cancer at the stage, you know, earlier in the piece, you know, I'd still go because it was meeting such a deep need that I needed. And that's, again, you know, retrospect such a beautiful thing, isn't it? And you don't see it when you're in it. But mm. you know, once we've got a little bit of wisdom and we've gone through our little hero's journey of breaking down and breaking through, we can look back and go, what was going on there? And this is like, especially as our role as coaches, when we get to sit down and not just focus on the numbers of our tests and the symptoms and all that stuff, we can actually put the pen down and listen to our clients or patients and just go, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your, your biography. You know, how did you get here from you know, conceived? Go, tell me the story. And then when you look at it, it makes so much sense when someone gets unwell. Now, it puts it all in perspective that that question, what does this mean in the context of your life, <clears throat> excuse me, becomes so much clearer. Um, and that's when you can really start to shift people. Being like, can you see what's in your biography and how that's led you to this point? Mm. Can you see how maybe you came up with that adaptation or that core belief, which is a I am or I'm not statement, which is so powerful, which shows up everywhere in our life. Can you see how a child might have made that mean something about themselves and came up with I'm not lovable or I'm not worthy? And how is that showing up in your career and in your your dietary pursuits and love life and things like that? Can we maybe have a look at that and maybe change our relationship to that and change the I am statement? And then when you do that, that's what changes everything. And this is the way that trauma impacts our physical health, not at the time of trauma. You know, childhood trauma, you know, you've got the ACEs, the adverse childhood events. You know, these things happen early in life, but they bite us in the ass decades later, 40, 50 years later. And the more of these ACEs, these traumatic events you've got, the more impact of chronic disease down the track. And this is how it works. Mm. And so getting people to understand this then, it's all about empowering them. Can you see what's going on here? Can you see what we need to do? And now they're in charge and that feels good. Now they're less anxious about their health. Um, and it's just, you know, an evolution of them getting momentum in their life and in their mental, emotional and physical health. Yeah, totally relate to that. Because that's the big part that comes in with this whole responsibility piece for me is like um, taking on responsibility for my clients, taking responsibility on mm. for my family or all those things to make them happy or to make them feel better or yeah. whatever was, I don't know how to feel worthy without doing that. Yeah. Like, and, and even like the high achiever part of me as well, of like doing well in business or doing well yeah. in life and this yeah. or sport or whatever. I don't know how to be enough without that. Yeah. yeah. Who am yeah. I? Who yeah. am I? Am yeah. I identified? Well, that's, that's the journey is how do I fulfill those needs inside of myself? Because mm. you're searching for it outside of yourself and it will never feed the hungry ghost that's within wanting that stuff. And it usually arises from a lack of that at some point in your life. I don't mean like a whole childhood of that. It can be one instance where you didn't feel validated, loved, and connected to. And that can be such a powerful stain on you that it still shows up and it creates all these coping strategies. Um, and so, you know, we've really got to go back and bring some love and compassion to that, understand what's going on. And then, you know, the, the very unsexy healing path of trying to develop that within ourselves. you know, and, and it's painful and it's hard and it feels like we're faking it. We've got to fake it till we make it almost and develop that connection within and that's when we start we stop searching outside of ourselves for that 
and that's it's not an easy path um, but you're on it which is amazing yeah it's wild man like i booked myself in for a massage the other day and i was like my whole body was just saying no i'm not going really yeah i was like i I just didn't feel worthy to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Totally. No, understand. Did, I'm moving, did you do it though? I'm moving through some deep yeah. eyes at the moment. Yeah. But, but you did it though? You had the massage? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Amazing. I went because I knew, cause I, knew yeah. like, I had to, like, that was yeah. what I had to break through. Like, and, and it's so hard because these things that are behavioral patterns, they're learned behaviors. You know, we are that adaptation, that learned behavior. And when we want to try to unlearn this stuff, it's really hard because it's, it's breaking the habit of being you. Mm. And we all know habits are really freaking hard to establish and even harder to break. And so when we're trying to break our own behavioral patterns, you know, that's really hard. And, you know, we self-sabotage because we always want to drive back to what's familiar, which is sometimes it's that core belief, you know, I'm not worthy or whatever it is. You know, it's predictable, it's familiar, and in that it's safe. So that's why we do it. Even though it's not optimal and it's not you know, necessarily healthy for us, but it's safe. And so we keep doing it. And so we've got to call this out and slowly circuit break it like what you did. You felt the fear, you did it anyway, or you felt the emotion, you felt the core belief, and I'm going to do it anyway, even if it doesn't feel that flash you know, right now. And the more that we do it over and over again, we start to kick more and more goals with that. And we start that, that process of only getting a few wins on the board to getting more wins on the board to doing it well all the time. And this is how we sort of unlearn our way of being which a lot of people need to do and there's no pill for that yeah it's just hard work in the trenches spotting that sticky resistance and going i, I fucking see you and i'm going to do it anyway mm. uh, you know so what i find funny it. about those behavioral sort of things like so the massage costs money yeah but like if you were to go for a surf you probably wouldn't feel the same yeah, well, no, and, and that fulfill you know, like that's treating you. It's interesting, isn't it's it? That, but even like, I, even like when I'm when I'm in it though, like surfing still is like no. Nah, like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. There's just a yeah. massive yeah, okay. weirdness. Like I don't deserve anything. Yeah. <laughs> for okay. myself, so, yeah. so, so all that inner work stuff that you're already doing, no, really delving into that that connection to self, that authentic self, and finding those layers that are there, which has sort of got some resistance there, and why that's there. It's deep, deep work, yeah. but it's where it's where the jewel is. It's where the fix, the cure, the the happiness, the authenticity, whatever you want to call it. That's where that is. If you can start to get closer and closer to that, yeah. Yeah, I feel it. It's happening. There's a definite awesome. part of me is dying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then we can on that, you know, it took me to almost die to start to figure out this and to go, oh, shit, this is the path I need to be on, you know, and I think this is a really important point is, um, you know, our body, our soul, whatever, whispers to us and we're going to hear the whispers and the whispers for many of us are the physical signs and symptoms it's the functional pathology results that are out of the reference range and showing up right on there or whatever these are your body's feedback mechanism trying to get your attention it's the whispers going hey i need change in my life so rather than going and fix the metric you know medicate the symptom the sign whatever it is hear the whisper and go i hear you what do you need and then ask the, the almighty question, what does this mean in the context of my life at the moment? Oh, that's what I need. I need to be going to bed a little bit earlier, more frequently, or, you know, I need to drink more bloody water, or, shit, I haven't exercised for three weeks now. I need to really pull my finger out and start to, you know, get a little bit more activity in my life. You know, it's a different relationship to health rather than there's a problem, go in and fix that reductionist sort of medical model view. You know, we need to, again, be more holistic with this and see what's the bigger picture here, what's really going on here. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you know, we don't hear the whispers. And if we don't hear the whispers for long enough, they turn into yells. 
if we don't hear the yells, they turn into screams. And for me, they turn into a big cast iron fry pan, you know, um, big diagnosis with a big lump on my testicle. That definitely gets your attention. <laughs> but then stubborn old me still try to bloody ignore the thing for, for three relapses two years fight against the resistance the familiar um, until I go alright I need to surrender to this and to let go so this is why it's so important for us to have these conversations for like you to share like you just did so vulnerably because it shows people that you know the thing with trauma and all the stuff that happens to us sometimes we just think we're the only one and it's just like we open up conversations like this and you go, oh, you too. Mm. Um, and if they can open up about it, maybe I can too. Or maybe that's just that little seed to, you know, to, to ask a question of a practitioner or to go and seek a practitioner or whatever it might be. So podcasts, you know, the work that you do is so important. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the biggest things that I think like moving into the, the surrendering and the letting go is the abyss and it's scary because it's like, you know, it's like it, it seems like darkness. It feels yeah. like what yeah. now? Yeah. So, like, there's always what's in the abyss. Who knows what's in the abyss? Yeah. So, it's like yeah. that's the one thing I've noticed like anxiety and like control and like all yeah. these like states. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. Oh. Definitely. So, you know, it's about having the right sort of support and techniques to help dip a toe into the abyss first maybe yeah mm. and then get a foot in there and then slowly slowly emerge into that some people just want to jump in and do a bomby into it you know uh, fair <laughs> enough you got some people like that yeah. um, but some people need to to be a bit more metered going in but generally you'll find at the bottom of that abyss and you might just be a little uh, treasure chest yeah yeah absolutely um there's one question i had for you too because i know you're kind of delving into other modalities of psychotherapy which is kind yeah. of challenging is are, are you open to sharing some of that absolutely yeah um yeah. plant medicine yeah for sure yeah, so I've done a lot of a lot of work a big part of me coming back to me and helping to to delve into these painful places was the use of plant medicines so certain psychedelics you know psilocybin mushrooms in particular for me very strong connection with ayahuasca um i've been over to the amazon jungle and spent a bit of time in there working with some very high level shamans to to help me become more aware of of me know thyself again that's all these medicines do is just show you these sticky points these roadblocks and help you to come back into authenticity back to your true nature remember who you are um you know, there's just different ways to do it. They call ayahuasca 10 years of psychotherapy in an evening. Um, so it's a very fast track into that abyss. It's like doing a bombing into the abyss. Um, but can be very, very powerful when done under the right set and setting with somebody who can, you know, very gently and confidently guide you in that process. Yeah. So, you know, I know it's getting very popular and there's a lot of stuff on the internet and everybody wants to you know wear the badge of the ayahuasca drinker, but it's not for the faint-hearted and it needs to be done in the reverence it deserves and also the seriousness that it is because it is very deep medicine can take you where you need to go if set up in the right way and held the right way through the process and unpacked the right way. So it's not just about rock up to your mate's lounge room and drink a cup and then off you go. It's There's a whole preceding and post sort of um, integration, I suppose, if you want to call it that, that can utilise these these tools for personal growth or spiritual growth. Yeah. And physical, I've, I've seen amazing miracles happen with physical health as well because it changes that relationship to self. And then the physiology or your health issues are very much related to your sense of self, your relationship to self. And if you change that relationship to self, then the disease is sort of like sitting there going, oh, what use am I now? 
you know, and you can see sometimes these phenomenal regressions and all sorts of things. And it was a very important part of my personal journey. Wow. Incredible. It's funny when you talk about like, like really visiting parts of yourself. Cause like when I did a mushroom journey about a year ago, um, it was like everything that I'm facing now, but I'm integrating it properly. Like right now actually feels like my psychedelic, psychedelic journey, but just in a less intense, potent yeah. way. Yeah what yeah. I'm moving through, it was like a, a three to four hours of just dancing with all of this all at once. And I was, yeah. and now I'm starting to understand it more. Like yeah. I'm starting to make more sense. Yeah. Well, the, these medicines, these sacred medicines, they're just portals, the portals into ourself and into our sense of self and the stuff that's happened to us. And, and they're awareness medicines. They bring awareness to the shadow, the things that are lurking in the background that we may have forgotten, that we may have disassociated from, that we may not even know is there. Um, and they can, again, when held in the right way, set and setting is more important than what you drink. So the people you sit with and the way that it's conducted, that's more important than what's in the cup. Um, and when done well, you know, it can really, really help you to become aware of what's there and what does it mean in the context of your life. Um, and that's why I'm a huge proponent of these things when done well. Um, I've actually, I'm, I'm starting training with My Medicine Australia, which is the, the leading organization into psychedelic um, assisted psychotherapy. So I'm doing the certification, starts in March. I'm super, super pumped because the, the clinical results and the science that's coming out with the clinical trials and the, the trajectory of these certain medicines like MDMA, psilocybin, it's phenomenal. The results are phenomenal, like nothing like it. That's why they've been given breakthrough drug approval to go to market quicker than what you know, the normal route would be for most things because you can't refute the benefit. Um, and so to, to really indulge in the world um, and how that may start to you know, show up in medicine um, and in psychology and how this is going to work is very exciting. Who knows where it's going to go, but um, it's all looking very positive at the moment. Oh, 100%. There's some yeah. wild stuff on MDMA therapy, like, yeah. like the PTSD. Like yeah. it's like the efficacy is like nearly perfect. Oh, yeah. It's like 80%, you know, never, yeah. you know, intractable depression where nothing's working, no drugs working, and then you do like psilocybin and things like that in a, you know, a structured way and you know, eight out of 10 of them, you know, fully come out, recover. You know, there's things like a boga, a different sort of plant medicine that's got a little bit more of a niche in addiction and opiate addictions, you know, has like an 80% success rate with first journey, you know, 80% of those never touch again, no withdrawals, just crazy, crazy outcomes because, I think, you know, especially for, like for addiction, and this is a lot of Gabor stuff, is like why do people turn to addiction quite often? It's to numb pain. What's the pain? Gabor's catch cry in his like seminars, or if he's working with someone, he's always like, why the pain? Not why the addiction, why the pain? And that takes you down into that the biography and what's happened in there and how it can lead to all the events that lead to substance abuse or alcoholism, whatever it might be. Well, I'll tell you so, what, with, with the medicines that I use, it was certainly uh, – Here's the pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotta rub your face in it. Here's the pain. Yeah. Um, it can feel like that sometimes. Yeah. And that's where obviously, you know, sometimes the, the medicines can be a little bit brutal like that. And so to be held through that's so important. So who is facilitating is very, very important. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Mark, is there anything else you want to ask? The only thing I want to ask at the end is just the childhood cancers. How childhood cancers are, you know, yeah. 
going crazy. Like, what are yep. your thoughts behind that? Like, are we talk, are we looking into yeah. like generational trauma, epigenetic type stuff? Or are we yeah. just physio- yeah. it, physical? It's always so hard, hey, like to watch that little five-year-old come in with a, you know, glioblastoma or something, something like that. And um, like we talked about all this stuff around trauma and then you look at a five-year-old like what, what sort of trauma is a five-year-old five year had yeah yeah like how how's this how's this work and so this is definitely yeah when we have to look a little bit broader and just go well, what does this mean and maybe the context of this family's bloodline maybe you know so epigenetically what happened you know what was the in utero experience for this child and the maybe the chemistry that was floating through the mother's blood any toxins that might be there you know this deuterium stuff that i mentioned a little bit earlier that's got some very interesting aspects to it that may be involved you know because of the way that it destabilizes mitochondrial membranes and then mutates um, mitochondrial dna and how that helps with cancer formation is there something there we don't know the the thing is like with medicine we don't know what causes cancer yeah we don't Um, and medicine certainly doesn't know how to cure cancer for the vast majority of them so these are, are big questions but Yes, I would have to say, yes, there can be environmental things. There can be obviously be dirty electricity, EMF exposure. We know this affects biological tissues and, you know, around high-powered, you know, um, power lines, mobile phone towers, stuff like that. You see the cancer clusters, the people that get a higher rate of things like brain cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, non-solid tumours. That, that's 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 pretty much fact. Is there a future now? So we know these things and how does it then you know, manifest in this beautiful little five-year-old or, or, or eight-year-old, it's really devastating and very hard to treat, very hard to treat because you can't give them a lot of things. And the oncology board is very protective over their pediatric cancer patients and to the point where they take them off of parents just for wanting to do things like maybe medicinal cannabis to help ease some pain. And I've seen kids get taken off of their parents. Um, just really, really hard. That is only um, going to – yeah, sorry. Yeah. And on a, on a little bit bigger level there, quite often what I've experienced, and this isn't the case for every single no, childhood cancer, so I don't want people to, to read into it this, but I've seen for a lot of childhood cancer patients, sometimes it's a little bit like my little – five-year-old nephew who I shared who who passed away in a horrible accident. He was a little angel that was in my life who had a five-year contract is the way that I see this. And he came in and he shifted everything. The reason I'm here talking to you about this was because of that day. Yeah. Sometimes these little things, little angels come in to change the trajectory of life for people. And the way that I some sometimes try to get my head around this is, well, maybe this is just a little angel coming to this family's life to shake things up. Yes, it's brutal. Yes, it's absolutely one of the most devastating things. I've got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old to lose one of those would be absolutely horrible. But I've seen also in some of these childhood you know, cancers, it shifts the family in a very positive way when you get to know them longer term, not in the moment. Mm. It's absolutely brutal. But, you know, sometimes maybe there's something there. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a tough one, though. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I, yeah. I, I actually totally agree because I, I don't believe there's necessarily good or bad in the world. It's just how, like, we interpret each scenario. You know what I mean? And that's, you know, so much easier said than done. But, you know, your, your example, I'm glad we circled around to it because your example is, you know, you've obviously been able to come on to this world and, and help so many different people. But like you said, it, it was born out of tragedy. Totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
you know, this is, I think, the the spiritual sort of nature of all the stuff and how, you know, our spiritual life, whether you, you want to put religion in there or not, but the spiritual bigger, bigger picture stuff, you know, we've got to open up and think a little bit this way. And some people aren't that way inclined and that's cool. They just think, well, it's childhood cancer. Maybe it's just, you know, chemical poisoning or something's happened. Something's created it. Maybe it's just bad luck. You know, there's that, that aspect too. Maybe there's just one cell that just didn't apoptose and now it's out of control. Maybe, um, you know, for me, I find a little bit more solace in a little bit deeper, wider, dare I say, spiritual exploration of, of this stuff. Yeah. Mate, Eddie, that was phenomenal. I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. yeah. Incredible, man. Yeah. I was, it was really one of my favorites. I loved it, mate. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks thank you so, so much. much for ha- thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's oh. been a lot of fun and it's just good just to, to open up like this. We need to do more of it. Everyone needs to do more of it. Yeah. yeah. 100%. And um, yeah, just the the level of knowledge and understanding that you can shed on these these topics, especially around cancer, is just I've never heard anyone speak about it like this. So it's yeah. It's- I think you know we've all got a little zone of genius. You know we've all got our niche, and, and usually it's in our biography. You know I do a little bit of mentoring with practitioners, and everyone wants to niche out these days. Yeah, I want to be the fertility specialist or this or that or that. I'm just like, hey, let's have a look at your biography because, you know, whatever it is that's in your biography, you got through it, which means you're a pro, you're you're one, you got it, you know, Um, and if you can come to terms with whatever that is in your hero's journey, I call it, then that's your medicine to give. In the the Joseph Campbell, Your Hero's Journey framework, he calls it the boon, B-O-O-N, which is like the gift, it's the lesson, and the hero in that always comes back to share. It's little Frodo Baggins going into Mordor and being broken down and like meeting his demons in Mordor and struggling and then coming through the other side, the hero, the hero's journey, but the hero always comes back and shares, shares the boon, shares the lessons, shares the wisdom. And I think we all have this. It's just finding what that is and you know, getting to a point where we're confident to share it. Mm. Love it, mate. Love it. Thanks so much, Ed. It's a, it's a mic drop right there. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thanks, brother. See you, mate. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this opened your mind to new possibilities in your journey. If you want to follow on for more, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Life Athlete Health and at Coach Jordan Briggs. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next time.